Welcome to episode 191 of Late Night Linux. I'm Joe, and with me are Fadim. Howdy. Graham. Good evening. And Will. Hello. Let's get straight on with our discoveries then. Graham, what's Torno Serial Plotter? So this is going to be of most use to uh, people who do a lot of messing around with Arduinos. If you use the Arduino and the Arduino IDE, you'll know that there's a, a serial monitor, which basically you can push out data from an Arduino from the serial connection back to your computer. And it's good for debugging things like button presses and all kinds of things. It's basically the only cheap two-way communication you can have with your Arduino while it's running your code. It's very limiting because it's text. And in the past, I've been debugging things like Piezo buttons to be able to see what pressure you need to be able to trigger something or whether there's a bounce, for example. And I've, I've even copy and pasted values into a spreadsheet to try and generate a graph. So what this does, Tauno Serial Plotter, however it's pronounced, is it in real time generates a plot, a line for the numbers that you output from the serial port on the Arduino, which is really useful for kind of tracking analog output from a sensor or a joystick or a button if you want to debug something or if you just want to visualize something to see how something's working on the arduino um, and it's much better than the serial monitor that comes with the id and you basically have to just add a load of serial prints in your arduino code just as you would for the monitor and then this will grab the serial port output and turn it into a chart in real time it's a small tool but it's really useful and I see under install on the GitHub, the first one is uh, get it from the Snap Store. <laughs> but they also have Flatpak and loads of other installation options. Yeah, and that's obviously why I chose it. Yeah. This is a really nice improvement to the the one that's built into the Arduino IDE, which is a very, very basic plotter. But this allowing you to output multiple numbers on one line with a common separator and having those all appear as different graphs, really nice. Yeah, you can't do that at all with the monitor because it's just a string of numbers. So yeah, that's really nice. Failing, you seem to have stolen a discovery from Graham, KDB Audio. It is not quite what you think. It is nothing to do with keyboards, synths, or anything like that. This is Fort Meade, Maryland tools right at your doorstep. It's a way to get a microphone to listen to the keyboard that you have on your desk, especially all of us who love mechanical keyboards, and it can sort of predict what you've typed with a bit of learning and teaching and is very disturbing. And there is a website that you can go to and try it right now. And it's unreal. So could you put this on a device and hide it away in somebody's room and basically interpret what they're typing with it? Effectively, yes. You do have to teach it a little bit about that keyboard so it can detect the noise, but even with a, a crappy headset mic from, you know, yeah. a good 45 centimetres away on my head above the keyboard, it was pretty close to what I was typing. This doesn't sound like the kind of thing we should be promoting, Failing. <laughs> <laughs> it absolutely is. You should know the horrors that await. <laughs> yeah, I suppose. Know your enemy. There is nothing wrong about this. It's very scientific and very interesting. And uh, yeah, terrifying as well. I mean, if this is one guy doing this, it's amazing what they could be doing in uh, sort of government agencies, perhaps. Yeah, I mean, there's all kinds of stories of lasers being shone against windows to be able to see the vibrations of the sound inside. I'm pretty sure Make Magazine had an article how you could make one yourself. Oh, <laughs> It's not hard. I think it used Audacity because <laughs> the, the waveform that it got off the bounce back of the, the light sensor was able to just convert it into a waveform straight away. So anyway, enjoy that. Mm. Yeah, thanks. <laughs> You're welcome. <laughs> Chrome OS Flex is now generally available 
And as long as you've got a Windows or Mac machine running Chrome that's running the Chrome extension, and you've got a USB drive that you can sacrifice to the installation medium completely, and a whole SSD or hard drive to install it to, you can turn an old laptop into a Chromebook. That's great. Seriously, though, what else are those laptops doing? Especially mm. like in companies where they may have a stack of 40 of them or, or in an educational establishment where they need some expertise to run some version of Linux that can run on those things and they can just whack this on. It makes me sad we don't have something for that, though. Well, we don't, yeah. That there's not a enterprise-grade Chromebook-level like install of XFC or, you know, one of those lower desktops. <laughs> <laughs> How dare you? <laughs> With all the management tools that could be installed, like one management node that could be installed and then they could all just talk to that and then you wouldn't have to go out to the bloody cloud and Gmail and all that other roped on nonsense that they want you to use. Oh. <laughs> The thing is, we do have that. We've got fucking dozens of them, and they're all shit. And nobody cares about it anymore, because Google have come along and knitted it all together into a really neat package, backed it up with a whole load of cloud-based services, which are as good as local ones, which people are moving to because they're better, not because they hate freedom. Are they, though? Yeah, they are. You, they you fucking know they are. They, they are. And, and it's, it's, it is a shame that this enormous market has been there and people in the Linux ecosystem and us specifically have been talking about it for years and years and years and nothing has improved. And so bollocks to it, Chrome OS, <laughs> much better. <laughs> oh man, Will for leader of the Conservative Party. <laughs> but this is actually really good. I've tried it on a, a decent machine. I think it's an 8th gen i7. It's not on the official list of 400 or so machines, but it worked absolutely perfectly. And the only thing that you don't have is Android app support, but honestly, that's just a bit of a gimmick, I think, unless you've got a touchscreen, of course, which this machine doesn't have. But you've got the Linux VM stuff. That worked perfectly. I had uh, Firefox running on it, and it only took about 10 seconds to start the entire container and... Uh, Firefox on Chrome OS, so that was quite nice. So this is a great way to help alleviate the e-waste problem that we have. And to say, oh, well, you could run MX Linux or any of the other dozens of smaller, lighter distros, even Zubuntu on them, that's just not going to wash in enterprise and education, is the bottom line, whereas Chrome OS Flex will. And I would rather see people run proprietary software on an old, otherwise perfectly good laptop then see that laptop be thrown in the bin. Yeah, I mean, we covered this, I don't know, a while back. Anyway, what are we going to do with all of these crafty old laptops? Well, I've looked at the supported laptops list, and my x 220s on there, my x 270s on there. So, you know, there's your answer. A load of Macs, a load of unsupported Macs. Yeah, and there's a NUC on there that I've got. And, you know, realistically, most older x86 certainly intel only laptops and desktops are going to work with this because i know it's not a super up-to-date kernel so really modern hardware is probably not going to work very well but you know if you've got a laptop that's you know a third fourth fifth gen i3 i5 it's going to work perfectly probably because it's a linux kernel at the end of the day so i think that we have to give google some credit here for helping with the e-waste problem Finding even more people to troll as their product. 
troll. Sorry, troll. <laughs> Why don't you just install KDE Neon on all those old machines for people failing and uh, solve the e-waste problem that way? Maybe I will. <laughs> okay, this episode is sponsored by Collide. Traditional endpoint security tools can make your workplace feel like a surveillance state, turn users and the IT team into adversaries, and ultimately drive your employees to work on unsecured personal devices. It doesn't have to be this way. Collide is a device security solution built around honest security. Their philosophy is that employees aren't your biggest security risk, they're your biggest allies, and your relationship with them should be based on transparency and informed consent. Collide works by notifying your employees of security issues via Slack and giving them step-by-step instructions on how to resolve them themselves. For IT and security teams, Collide provides the right level of visibility for Mac, Windows and Linux devices. It can answer questions about your fleet's security that traditional MDMs can't. You can meet your security goals without compromising your values. Visit collide.com slash late night Linux to find out how. If you follow that link, they'll hook you up with a goodie bag just for activating a free trial. That's K-O-L-I-D-E dot com slash late night Linux. On to a bit of admin then. First of all, thank you everyone who supports us with PayPal and Patreon. We really do appreciate that. If you want to join them, you can go to latenightlinux.com slash support. And remember, for $10 or more per month on Patreon, you can get an advert-free RSS feed that includes this show, Linux After Dark, and Linux Downtime. And if you want to get in touch, you can email show at latenightlinux.com. The other day, I had an interesting experience. I was walking around at night, as I do, and there was a Russian lorry driver who'd pulled off the road and was totally lost. And so I went and talked to him because I was a little bit drunk and asked him, did he need help? And I couldn't talk to him. He spoke no English. I spoke no Russian apart from Spesabatovarish, which means thank you, comrade. (laughs) And we somehow managed to communicate with each other to a point where he showed me where he wanted to go. I gave him directions and sent him on his way. And I made the world a tiny bit better by helping him. How did I do that? Using evil proprietary software, Google Translate. And it made me think, sometimes proprietary software is a force for good in the world, no matter how much you don't like that idea failing. Yeah, I think that's more software in being useful. Like, It doesn't have to be proprietary software to do those things. It's just those happen to be proprietary. Right, but we don't have, as far as I know, anything even approaching Google Translate in the free and open source software world. Okay, but I mean, I think that's just a case of they've built something to try and draw people in. I mean, I think I think more that I would take away from this is the fact that software can be really powerful and can help people communicate. I don't think being open or being proprietary has to be the defining factor of it. I think that package could equally have been open source if they had chosen to make it that way. I think software, there's been a bit of a... Um passing the baton from proprietary to open source software back to proprietary in some senses and each are good for certain things i mean open source maybe the academia before even proprietary software was commonplace was was used to push software forward and then proprietary software kind of pushed things through the late 70s and 80s and then there's linux of course and i think what we have to watch out for is an artificial monopoly which could be with Google Translate, the fact that Google is built on so much open source software and holds so much data proprietary could be a problem. It could inhibit us being able to do stuff that's more inventive in the future. 
But I don't think that means that proprietary software is inherently bad. It's just another way of approaching the same kind of problem and maybe trying to solve the problem in a different way. And open source can respond to that with a level playing field. And I suppose the proprietary software that was running on my phone that allowed me to communicate with this fellow was talking to a Linux server somewhere or a VM or container or whatever. And so it probably wouldn't even be possible. I mean, I'm sure it wouldn't be possible for Google to be where they are without building their empire on open source. So really, it might be a bit of proprietary software, almost like a shim, really, back to a powerful Linux machine that was doing the actual work. Yeah, I think you're probably hitting the nail right on the head there. I mean, I don't think any of the internet could be built on proprietary software. It just wouldn't have been possible because just the sheer number and scale of things is just not there. So in this case, there might very well be a very proprietary GUI on top of a open system in the back end. To play devil's advocate, to my own point, would be the <laughs> fact that if you have a small subset of uh, people, say, for instance, blind users of computer systems, there's no open Braille system. They're very dependent on a small select number of companies that build very specialized pieces of hardware for them. And we don't do very well at that at all. To get hardware, to get support, unless there's a lot of money involved, generally those companies are going to keep that locked in. So I would say it's quite difficult if you are anyway a minority user to, to get advantage of all our systems that we have right now. If you, if you're not one of them, yeah, it might just work out fine, but, um, there's definitely a place for it. I mean, I think it would be hard to see a company invest a lot of time, effort, and then release it separately as fully open in the sense that we'd all want it to be. Your business plan might not stand up to it. Yeah, it's just not realistic to expect everything to be open source, maybe. Maybe it could be, but I mean, I think you'd have to secure funding some way. And generally, I think we found out that donations don't necessarily work that well for that type of system. So unless people were willing to contribute everybody globally a small amount and that was to get fed back into the companies and then how do you pick that company is it going to be one or is it going to be many yeah it's it's very difficult i think or even taxpayer funded well i think there's a lot to be said for that because i think your taxpayer money should go into a system that you have access to and full rights to i don't think tax money should go into companies that are just siphoning it off into a private enterprise i mean i don't think that's a great way to do things especially if you can kickstart an industry in your own local town or city or whatever. I think there's a lot to be used in the sense of a open system that's publicly funded. Definitely. Public money, public code. Yeah. As the FSF have been going on about for a while. They're not wrong to just maybe <laughs> publicize it badly. <laughs> yeah. Well, even a stop clock and all that. I found a piece on InfoWorld called Open Source Isn't Working for AI. And Matt Assay, I think that's how you say it, argues that what we consider the open source way of doing things is not fit for purpose when it comes to AI, because there's only three major players in the AI space, and they've got such massive hardware resources that are all different, that it doesn't really make sense for them to open source everything that they're doing with AI, because no one could actually do anything with it. And he says that opening it up in terms of API access and letting people interact with it would actually be more useful than just open sourcing all the code that it's running. When I read this article, I started off getting quite cross with, uh, with the author, thinking, no, you're wrong, you're wrong. But the more I got through it, I kind of 
understand his point of view and kind of found myself agreeing with it that what's the point in open sourcing code which is unusable, unintelligible, and just simply won't work for anybody other than the author? I still think that not open sourcing something because it's hard is still absolutely the wrong thing to do. But also, where's the benefit for other developers for humankind if you can't actually use it? So I, I'm conflicted by this whole thing. Open source has got to be the way, but it's kind of got a point. If you're not going to use it, why bother? I think the argument against his point of view is that historically, it's going to be better to open source it because no one else might have the computing power to run it now, but you'll probably be able to run it in the equivalent of a VM or container in 20 or 30 years on a laptop because things have progressed so far. And just having these black boxes of AI can't be good. So it, it kind of falls down there for me. It does have a point, but I think it does have holes in it. Yeah, I think I agree with you, Joe. I think maybe what we have needs to be augmented in some way. Still have the open source part for whatever reasons for the future, but also to keep them honest. But also, it'd be great if that could be enshrined, but it's never going to happen in some way that gives us access to the APIs as well. But I mean, it hasn't happened now, so I can't see it happening, not through a kind of licensing framework. But could it be that in trying to get them to totally open source it, we're just shooting ourselves in the foot, whereas if we went for something more realistic, like API access, we might have more of a chance of that? I've not thought about it too deeply, but my first thoughts are that they, if they're controlling the aspects that are released through the API, then they still kind of hold, whoever they is, it's still a kind of a gatekeeping in a way that we might not want. Um, at least with the source code, it could be ratified and we understand the API part of it, whereas we don't get that if we just get the APIs that we're given. Take, for instance, something like Clearview where the facial recognition software that's used in a lot of like airports and police videos, like that has a real world implication for people who are accused of being, you know, criminal, terrorist, whatever. If we're not able to look at that and see why they were chosen, then I don't think that should be in a position where it is in such a powerful place, but with no verification and standards. We have to have verification in as many locations as possible. Even the data sets should realistically be audited properly. Maybe we have someone else look after that part. I don't know if large corporations are necessarily the best purveyors of these type of things. I'm not sure. Okay, this episode is sponsored by Linode. Go to linode.com slash late night Linux, support the show and get $100 free credit. From their award-winning support offered 24-7, 365 to every level of user to ease of use and setup, it's clear why developers have been trusting Linode for projects both big and small since 2003. Deploy your entire application stack with Linode's one-click app marketplace or build it all from scratch and manage everything yourself with supported centralized tools like Terraform. And check out their managed MySQL, Postgres and MongoDB databases that allow you to quickly deploy a new database and defer management tasks like configuration, managing high availability, disaster recovery, backups and data replication. Simple and fast to deploy with secure access, their flexible plans include daily backups. So go to linode.com slash late night Linux, create a free account, and you'll get $100 in credit and support the show. That's linode.com slash late night Linux. Let's do some feedback then. We have a message from Nathan uh, regarding Drew DeVault's post about package managers. 
I'm not trying to dodge his criticisms, which are often valid. The recent upload of malware to crates.io should serve as a wake-up call to the Rust community that some things have to change. However, the problems that a tool like Cargo solves are not the same as the problems that your package manager was made to solve. A tool like Apt or Pacman is designed for the software end-user and used to keep their installed programs and shared libraries up to date. Cargo, on the other hand, solves the problem of maintaining the code that gets statically compiled into your Rust binary. It's a developer tool, not an end-user tool. The idea that your system package manager can or ever has solved this problem is not just wishful thinking, it's probably disingenuous for someone like Drew DeVault to even say it, considering he has the technical know-how to realise the difference. It has, in fact, been quite common for software projects to ship code from another project in their source distribution in order to ensure the code builds against a known version of that library. A quick look at the Chromium source, for instance, and you'll find a directory called Third Party, which has literally dozens of open source libraries developed outside of Google inside it, including major projects such as FFmpeg, Zlib and SQLite. This is known as vendored or pinned code. In the past, when everything was written in C or C++, there was no mechanism to update this pinned code and audit it other than developer diligence, leading to an awful lot of cases where ancient libraries were built into major software projects. Cargo is actually a step in the right direction here, as it provides tools for alerting the developer if such code is behind upstream and some automation for updating it. All that said, by default, all that is required in order to get a crates.io login and begin publishing packages is a GitHub login. Even as someone who has fully embraced Rust, I don't see this as something that can continue going forward. The community and project need to come together on a better trust model going forward, and we can and should implement a number of security-minded checks, such as disallowing names which are within a character or two's difference from, a, from an established library. That, in my opinion, is the best way forward. Not throwing every everything away that Cargo has given to the developer. Is there really a difference between developer tools and user tools, though, when it's such a technical user base using Linux? I think so, yes. I think Nathan makes a good point about third-party repositories with all the outdated packages in there that maybe, you know, get copied and duplicated across forks and built, even though there are probably known problems with some of those things. And that is a developer issue. I know that we're technically, lots of us may be technically capable of understanding the ramifications of that, but we shouldn't have to and users shouldn't have to. They should be able to trust the packages and how they're built. But at least Nathan does admit that there are some quite serious problems that need to be solved here. Yeah, I do agree with what he's saying. I mean, I hadn't, I don't know Cargo well enough to know that it solves this specific problem and I can understand the problem and it's a good solution. But yes, if that builds trust from one direction and then breaks it by letting anybody else publish something via their GitHub login, then it could be even more dangerous. Yeah, I haven't got very far into my Rust book at all yet, but <laughs> I've read the introduction. Uh, but from a Python aspect, like... Yeah, it's the same thing. PyPy can, can get uploads or, you know, as we saw, what was it? There was 10 different ways to spell one package and we need to cut that shit out. Like we need, there needs to be something up there that is looking for people trying to do, was it name squatting or whatever the hell yeah, they call typo it? Squatting, thing? Type, yeah. typo squatting, that's it. Yeah. Like stupid stuff like that. But equally, we want distros to have reproducible builds, I think, because we want to be able to not have to trust the distro. You know, we should be able to 
take the source code for something and check it all the way through the pipeline and on our own system see that it fits the the same checksum but i don't think that's fully there yet either it's a it's a quite a difficult thing to think unless we have uh passport offices for uh developer accounts and github you know i don't know how we we get that sort of trust level up well it's something that the snap store tried to solve and i think did to a large extent with the uh the little tick next to the recognized developers that doesn't seem that hard to implement surely yeah but i don't think that's going to work for someone like say you know me it might work for Microsoft with Teams, say, for instance, but if I release a script that essentially does sorting or something like that, will I get that tick mark easily? You know, that's not a very scalable sort of system, I don't think. Well, the premise behind it is that you are known to the developers of that project. So the people who got the tick in Ubuntu were people who were known to the team. And I think that that premise is sound, that if you are willing to engage with the wider development community, establish yourself as a person of significance and influence and responsibility, then you should have the the, the blessings that come with it. I think that that's a fair entry point to getting like approved status. You're saying that influencers should be respected. <laughs> I wouldn't go that far. <laughs> well, if it's a long con, though. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think, yeah, you, this is true. Well, if it is a long con, I think that people who invest significant amount of time deserve to con people. <laughs> <laughs> All right, well, returning to uh, the very first episode of this show before Will and Graham were around, <laughs> Sean said, hey, guys, a friend sent me this link showing Pornhub's 2021 year in review. Looking past all the other stats, you will find the number of Linux desktop users grew 28% from 2020 to 2021. Also note that this is excluding Chrome OS. Any Linux growth is good, right? <laughs> oh dear. I was not thinking that at all on how to uh, shoehorn it in. Oh, look, I was really getting into uh, trouble here. But it's, it's not actually as good as you think because the actual market share is only 2.8%. But that is still mm. better than the 1% that we kind of think. So at least 2.8% of the wankers use Linux. <laughs> oh, he's looking to suck the joy out of that one, aren't you, Joe? Oh, come on. <laughs> so, <laughs> 28% is a very significant increase, though. That's That's pretty good. COVID was a hell of a lonely time. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so it would seem. And I remember talking about this on, on the first episode yeah. uh, and asking whether it is representative or to what extent it's representative of everyone on the internet. And uh, I, I don't know. I don't think we came to a conclusion. Not really. But I mean, it is a real data point. It's probably better than those old Netstat ones that used to be about. Mm. Continue to be around, yeah. And there's nobody sitting there browser identification tag for <laughs> to, to hit these sites to, to Linux, I'd imagine. But hey. It's better than the Steam survey as well, I would have thought. I think it's, uh, well, it's a generalization, but I think it's probably an accurate one to say that the Pornhub clientele are primarily young males. I think that that's probably a fair representation of a significant part of the Linux user base as well. I'd be interested to see how this matches up with the Wikipedia metrics, which I think they might have stopped publishing years ago, but I haven't really looked for it for a while. I'm just laughing thinking you did a pivot table to those two. <laughs> <laughs> two very important data points. 
My mum's blocked Pornhub, so I can't tell. <laughs> I wonder if there's an element of trust in it as as well, in that people may be installing Linux or running it in a VM, knowing that there isn't going to be so much tracking involved. So there may be slightly more Linux use than is representative of true kind of browser usage as well. Your special browser for weekend usage. In your <laughs> yeah, your special <laughs> VM. Yeah. I mean, that's what I'd do. <laughs> Well, funnily enough, the proportion of female visitors is 35% worldwide. And they break it down by country. And uh, Philippines, Colombia, Argentina, Mexico, they're all the, the high ones. Uh, don't, oh, yeah, United Kingdom, 31%. So nearly a third, which is a lot more than I thought it would be. Hmm. wonder how they get those numbers. I know. They must be doing some pretty intrusive tracking to get <laughs> that kind of uh, data. Let's hope the numbers keep growing. <laughs> Let's hope they do. Right, well, we'd better get out of here then. We'll be back next week when who knows what's going to be going on. Could be news, could be anything. Who knows? But until then, I've been Joe. I've been Phelan. I've been Graham. And I've been Will. See you later. <laughs>